powerful, gracious, and loving. Through your word, revive our souls that we would see your light. Inspire our hearts that we would long for an ever deeper relationship with you. And grant us wisdom that we may live more fully into the purpose to which you have called us. Bless us with your grace and truth this morning as we meditate and reflect on your word. Amen. Well, the passage that we are going to focus on this morning is in, uh, it's found in Luke chapter 3. And we're going to start at verse 15. And I'm going to read verse 15 and then I'm going to pause our reading and talk about it and what's going on. We're going to explain that a little bit. But first, let's look at Luke chapter 3, verse 15. It says, As the people were filled with expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah. So let's, let's talk about what's going on. First, who are we talking about? There's a couple of Johns in the Bible, so which one is this? Well, this one is John the Baptist. Personally, this might be a little biased, but I'd prefer if we called him John the Presbyterian. But no one asked me my opinion, so we're going to stick with John the Baptist. Uh, I do think he would be Presbyterian in his theology, but um, we'll talk about why he's called John the Baptist uh, later. But first, about John. He's a very important figure. He's featured in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but that's a different John. But more specifically, every gospel account includes this, this scene of John's ministry, uh, which we're going to focus on today, that leads up to Jesus' baptism. It's interesting that not every account, or not every gospel records Jesus' birth, but every gospel does record this scene of Jesus' baptism and how John had an important part in it. So John the Baptist is important, and he's also, he's a very intriguing fellow, uh, even mysterious. He's kind of this mysterious figure. I think sometimes we don't exactly know what to do with him. Uh, not only for us, you know, as we read about him, you know, from 2,000 years ago, but he was a very interesting and even mysterious figure in his own time. And we see that here in verse 15. As all the people were filled with expectation, you know, they're, they're kind of sensing something's happening, something's going on, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John. They're like, who is this guy? What's he doing? Is he the Messiah? So who is this guy? He got people's attention, and they were trying to figure out who he was. So what made him so intriguing to the people? Well, for starters... Uh, he lived an interesting lifestyle, lived out in the desert, wilderness. Um, he really seemed to take, whole, take on that whole wilderness man image. Uh, did anyone ever used to watch, I don't think it comes on anymore, but uh, watch on Discovery Channel Survivor Man? Anybody ever watch that? Just me? Okay, maybe a few head nods, okay. Well, or there's like Bear Grylls, I think his show is Man vs. Wild, something like that. Well, see, those guys... You know, they're putting on a TV show. They'd be dropped off in a remote wilderness somewhere, and they had to survive for like seven days or ten days. And, but they didn't have anything on John the Baptist. John wore clothing made out of camel's hair, which seems to be interesting, and his diet consisted of locusts and wild honey. So he lived this very 
minimalistic, ascetic life in the desert, countryside, or wilderness, seeking God's revelation. John was a spiritual man. He wasn't just out there just kind of living a hippie life. He was out there seeking God, a word from God. And in today's world, John would probably most definitely be looked at as a, as a weirdo, you know, someone who's not in the right state of mind. And I'm sure there were some back then who maybe thought the same way, but he also had a lot of respect. He got a lot of attention from people. And it wasn't so much from his lifestyle or where he was living or what he was wearing or what he ate. It was the message that God gave to John to preach. And earlier in Luke chapter 3, we see these words. It says, The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What does that mean? Well, the gospel writer Luke, in this case, he gives us both a description of what John was physically doing, which was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But Luke also explains for us this bigger meaning. He's, he's seeing what else is happening through John. And he, he quotes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Hey, that John guy, that's that voice crying out in the wilderness. And what's he crying out? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. That's what John's role was, was to prepare the way of God's anointed one, the Messiah. And Luke was very emphatic about this. This isn't the, the first time that we see this. We actually, uh, in Luke's gospel, we see that even before John was conceived, even before he was, a, what do we say, the glimmer in his mother's eye or whatever, that an angel appeared to his father Zechariah saying, he will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And again, right after John was born, his father Zechariah said these words, and you child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. John's role was one of preparation. And so how did John call the people to be prepared? Well, he called them to stop, to stop and really think about their lives not just to continue along with the status quo, but to really pause and take a personal inventory about how they've been living, 
How have they been treating others? And maybe, just maybe consider if they have been putting their faith on autopilot. John called both Gentiles and Jews alike to undergo a baptism of of repentance. Our word baptism comes straight from the Greek language. Um, The Greek word is baptizo, and it means to dip in water or to wash. And so John must have been baptizing a lot of people out there in the, the wilderness along the Jordan because he got his nickname, John the Baptizer. John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, John the Washer. Um, this isn't going to be a funny joke, but I'm going to say it anyway. So if he was a football player, instead of being the fridge, he would probably be like the dishwasher or some other appliance. It's not funny, don't laugh. The baptism of repentance that John offered, that baptism of repentance was unique because what John offered was an opportunity for the people to mentally and spiritually prepare themselves for what God was about to do. It was a call for the people to fix their hearts on God, which meant that they had to confront themselves. They had to confront their inward and selfish ways to acknowledge their spiritual apathy and to cast aside the distractions in order that they would be then open to receive God's grace. And John's message to the people was, now is the time. Not, you know, 10 years or, you know, this day's coming. He says, now is the time. The kingdom of God is near. And the baptism that John offered was an opportunity, again, for the people to symbolically wash themselves of sin and to reorient their lives in a, in a God-honoring way. That's what his baptism was all about. It was about redirecting their hearts to God, to be open and ready for God's revelation and action in the world. It was a preparation. So looking back at our text, again, we read, As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. And skipping to verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened up. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved With you, I am well pleased. What happens in this scene, in this moment, I think it's why it's recorded uh, so similarly in all four of the Gospels, is because this is a monumental moment. What happens here is an inauguration of a new era. Not eras as we think of, you know, worldly eras, but it was a new era of God's redemptive plan. Presbyterian 
minister and scholar R.C. Sproul once said that he liked to ask, ask his seminary students, who was the most important Old Testament prophet? So he'd ask his seminary students, they'd think, and they'd kind of come up with answers like, well, Isaiah, you know, he's got probably the longest book, or maybe Jeremiah, maybe Daniel, maybe Elijah. He was an important figure. But Sproul's question was a little bit of a trick question because his answer to who, to the question of who is the most important Old Testament prophet, his answer was John the Baptist. I'm like, well, how could John the Baptist be the most important Old Testament prophet if he's recorded in the pages of the New Testament? Well, because in Sproul's thinking, even until John the Baptist, the, the old system, the old covenant, the, the system of the Old Testament was still in place. And it was even Jesus himself who spoke of John saying, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. But the baptism of Jesus marks the defining transition. It marks the fulfillment of John's mission, as well as all the other Old Testament prophets. And it marks the beginning of Jesus' mission and ministry. From that point on, Jesus comes to the for- forefront. He begins his, his public ministry among the people that would ultimately lead him on his journey toward the cross. This passage, it's a sort of a passing of the torch, so to say, but it's more than that. It marks the beginning of a cosmic transition from the old covenant to the new covenant of grace. Remember that the word Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title, right? The word Christ comes from the Greek word meaning the anointed one which is the translation of the, Greek, or the Hebrew word Messiah. And as the Holy Spirit in this passage descends on Jesus, it marks his anointing by the Father. It is a scene of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on display as God's plan of redemption is unfolding. Jesus takes center stage, the Christ, the anointed prophet, priest, and king now takes the lead role. Now I want to return to the text to where John talks about how his baptism is different than Jesus' baptism. John said, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Again, John's baptism was one of preparation, one of, you know, like a ceremonial cleansing and just kind of wanting to get ourselves right with God. But while John's baptism was one of preparation, Jesus's baptism was one of initiation. It was one that comes with fire, and we'll talk about that in in a minute. But John was saying that real baptism is not something that merely washes the outside of you. It's not something where we just kind of like wash our hands. We're like, okay, great, I'm all good. Real baptism is about what the Spirit of God does inside you through Christ. As we look at this passage, I, would, I know for me, I'm, I'm going to assume maybe for most Christians, we're fine with the idea of being baptized by the Holy Spirit. That sounds nice. That sounds peaceful. 
We want God's spirit to fill us. We like that. But what about that and fire bit? I'm a bit of a pyromaniac. Um, it's, fire is nice to watch in a fireplace and all that, and we're to roast marshmallows over. But I don't think I'd want to be baptized with fire. That sounds harmful. That sounds like death. But of course, John is not talking about being baptized by, you know, physical fire. We're not asked to walk on coals before we, you know, join a church or anything like that. Thank goodness. But here's the real truth for us. When we are baptized by the Spirit, there is a death that takes place. Fire does bring about destruction. But it can also bring about renewal and purity. The word fire in biblical Greek is pure. That's kind of how you would say it. And it's where we get our English words like pure. (laughs) We add an E to it. Uh, Or purify, purity, or even purge. And just like boiling water with fire can purify it. Or melting down metal so that the dross can, remove, can be removed purifies it. God's spirit is a refining fire. It's a gift. It conforms us more and more to the image of Christ. That we would be as God intended us to be from the beginning of creation as his representatives, his likeness and image on earth. Like Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Paul's saying that part of me has died with Christ. And it is I I no longer who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we are walking in the Spirit, we put to death our old self. And the sin that seeks to hold us hostage to, that old way, to our old ways. But our baptism in Christ means that the Holy Spirit is at work within us to purify us. To do a work in us and to renew us. The death that the Spirit brings is ultimately not a painful one. It's the death of sin's power and consequence. And it's the restoration of life with God. I like what also what Paul says in Colossians 3. It says, so if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. You have died. That's, that's that kind of baptism by fire. For you have died. But listen to this. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. When we reflect on, on our baptism in Christ, and I, I think it's so important that we have at least our font up here every Sunday as a reminder for us. When we reflect on our baptism in Christ, we ought to recognize that while it does represent a washing away of sin, it means and it signifies a much deeper and richer reality for us. I'll end with this. You can't see what's coming on the horizon if you're staring at the dirt, right? 
can't see what's coming out on the horizon. What, you, know, you can't see the big picture if all we're doing is staring at the dirt right in front of us. John the Baptist urged the people to look up, to seek God's revelation, and to be ready for God to reveal his glory to them. We know how easy it is to um, put our lives on autopilot. It happens to all of us. We all get in modes or times of life where we are just trying to get through what seems like the never-ending checklist of tasks. I mean, I've got mine. Anyone else still have their Christmas trees up in their house? Okay, I'm not the only one. I, I thought I might be the only one left, but yeah, I got it. Yeah, me. Uh, added to that, you know, our upstairs heater went out the other day, so I got to call someone about that. And then my Jeep started leaking oil, so I got, you know, my checklist keeps getting longer the more I'm trying to check it off and get things done. And I just kind of feel like running in sand almost, or you take, you know, what, what would we say, two steps forward, one step back. It's so hard for us sometimes to keep up with everything that needs to be done. And it's hard to take time to, to sit and to deeply reflect on our life and faith, but we need to. You know, trains like a, my little friend Thomas <laughs> reminds us they don't do too well when they're off the tracks. They even fall over. As powerful and as big and as much as these things can do, they don't do a whole lot when they're off their tracks can be a reminder for us that uh, sometimes we can get off track. But our baptism is a reminder of God's spirit and his work within us. And so how can we, kind of as John encouraged the people, take time to stop, prepare ourselves, and to focus on glorifying God with our lives? Because now is a good time. I mean, one, because it's the beginning of a new year, and so many like to reflect and kind of reorient. But ultimately, mainly because any day, every day is a great opportunity to embrace God's grace for you. So now's a good day. Let us pray. Lord, help us 